Hi guys, Sam Willis here. Now, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new competition we're running to win a signed copy of one of our series books. We've got books on World War II, the Romans, the Tudors and the Vikings. We know there are many, many thousands of you out there listening to our podcasts and we want you to tell us on social media what you're doing and where you are whilst listening. We want to see all the beautiful places or ordinary jobs or wacky things you're doing whilst listening. Either send a photo or just describe where you are and what you're doing and we'll draw a random winner. But remember, to qualify for the competition, you have to tag us in your post and add our webpage, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, but if you do let your followers know that you're listening to us and enjoying it, we'll enter you into our competition for a signed book. Thanks everyone and good luck. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like pigs, triangles and chess. Or pizza, pinafores and piffle, pansies, PJs and potatoes. See what I did there? Slight variation <laughs> on the theme. But potatoes is all about the famine of that name that decimated Ireland in the mid-19th century. But... That aside, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Yes, indeed we will. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of insults, one of my favourite episodes so far, is in fact all about the duel in 18th century America. It's about Monty Python. It's about African-American your mama jokes. It's about Cicero, of all things, slander in Elizabethan England. It's also about Babylonia in 3500 BCE, or that hiding is in fact all about Elizabeth I and Catholics, which is a special one in our series on homeschooling history. It is, and we're enjoying it very much indeed, aren't we? I've got a list in front of me and all the ones I want to do, which uh, they include lunchboxes, wobbling, freaking out, lying in, sharing and saying sorry. Oh, that sounds brilliant. <laughs> lunchboxes must be about World War One and trenches. It is about life in the trenches during the First World War. Oh. You all have to tune in for that one. It's, it's an absolute cracker. Um, we're going to be doing, doing that in the next couple of days. Ladies and gentlemen, the man sitting, or well, he's not sitting opposite me because we're at the other end of town. I'm still stuck in lockdown, so I'm in my shed on my own, which is very sad. But he is, nonetheless, he's the pot at the end of the historical rainbow. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Hello. Uh, while Sam is ensconced in his shed, I have made a little den upstairs on the top floor of our house away from the homeschoolers downstairs where I can record in isolation but the man not sitting opposite me who is across town is in fact the Richard of York gave battle in vain he is the boy's name Roy G Biv red orange yellow green blue <laughs> indigo violet of history it's the truly famous, wonderful historical adventurer who isn't historical adventuring at the moment because of lockdown, but it is nonetheless Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, Richard of York, I like. Yes. Isn't that good? Isn't it good? Yeah. That was a long, rather long-winded introduction to you <laughs> there, but it gives everyone a clue of what we're going to be doing today. 
It is. Um, James and I have been doing some um, uh, topics inspired by what's going on. And James, he usually comes up with the best ideas, I have to say. He well, came up with the idea of doing rainbows. Well, and the reason I came up with this was because my wife went out for her, uh, one of her constitutionals, uh, went out for a, uh, one of her pieces of exercise that she's allowed daily uh, and came back and said she'd seen a beautiful rainbow. And she said, you know what you and Sam should do? You should do something on the history of rainbows. And she'd also wandered past windows full of rainbows as people have crocheted rainbows, drawn rainbows, painted rainbows, made rainbows out of flowers, all as a sort of trail of peace and joy for children to follow around on their socially distanced walks during lockdown. So I mentioned this to you and you said, let's do it. Absolutely. And it's all very much linked with the NHS. You can't really see a rainbow now in a window without um, without seeing the thanks associated with the NHS. And I asked my wife about this because she works for the NHS. And um, she believed that it was um, some lady on social media had just done a post with a rainbow and it had kind of gone viral. It was nothing, nothing more than that. It was inspired by just someone's moment of brilliance. Hmm. Um, but how do we then take this inspiration of doing rainbows, whether we're seeing them in the sky or seeing them in drawings and windows, and try and come up with a history of it? It was a bit of a challenge, which makes it a classic, uh, classic subject for histories of the unexpected. I initially thought about Isaac Newton because oh. I am um, also doing homeschooling. I'd been doing some physics with my daughter and he is very uh, famous for explaining how rainbows worked through the refraction of light. So I thought that what you could do, and I'll be talking about this later, is you can study the history of people trying to explain how rainbows worked. Excellent. So you can look at the science behind rainbows. So you can think about how people study rainbows today, how it's taught in schools, and it's about the refraction of light, it's a meteorological phenomenon, uh, and this ha this has its own history all the way back to the to the ancients. So the Romans are thinking about this, and then it has a really interesting history through medieval thinkers uh, about this. But you can also think about it in terms of its symbolism, um, and you could think about it from you know, biblical sources um, in the Book of Genesis, for example, God's covenant to never destroy life on earth with a global flood again so it's the rainbow that comes after the flood um, you can think about it represented in a whole range of texts so in north norse mythology for example um, it's a bridge it's a rainbow bridge bifrost which connects the world of men and the realm of gods and this bridge is is a fiery bridge. Um, it's, it also appears in flags as well. So you can think, I mean, most, um, most sort of popularly now, it, I mean, it's been, it's a symbol now for the NHS and for COVID, but it's also very dominant as an LGBT pride symbol. So you see that as a, a symbol that's everywhere. And I think that what's interesting about that is the way in which the rainbow represents something that involves everyone. So it's about diversity. It's firstly about peace and it's also about diversity. So the LGBT flag is about representing, you know, the diverse people who represent themselves or, or identify as LGBT. Um, but it's also, 
It's also something that's been adopted by politics. You know, so you talk about the, the Rainbow Alliance or the Rainbow Coalition of parties, and those parties would be parties that come together from across the political spectrum. Uh, in 1994, for example, in South Africa, post-apartheid, Desmond Tutu and President Nelson Mandela saw the groupings of, of politics together as they saw South Africa as a rainbow nation during that period. They'd come out of apartheid and what they were trying to set up was something that was much more democratic and diverse and incorporated vast bodies of people. So you could think about it in that way. Yep. A huge variety. Um, I'm going to start by uh, just looking at the different ways that scientists have explained the rainbow over time. And I want to focus on one particular guy, um, a guy called Al-Karifi, who was um, in, lived in Egypt in, around the 1220s. And to understand what he's doing, you've got to realise that there have been other people writing about rainbows, goes back as far as Aristotle, um, maybe even further. Chatwood Anaxagoras also wrote about them. But we've got um, Seneca, he's Roman, he's writing about um, rainbows. Ibn Sina, Persian, um, lived around 1000 AD in Iran. I came across him when I was doing my Silk Road stuff because he was born in Bukhara in modern Uzbekistan. He's an absolutely fascinating person and he wrote so much about the natural world and science and he didn't allow rainbows to get him past. So a key moment there in the Islamic golden age of philosophy. Um, I'm then going to talk about Al-Karifi, but he was followed by another chap in the 14th century called Theodoric of Freiburg. He's a Teutonic member of the Order of Preachers, and he writes in a very unique, fascinating way about rainbows as well. So there is a whole a, a rainbow of um, extremely bright people from all over the place writing about rainbows. So if you were interested in the history of rainbows and you were interested in Persian history or Greek history or Roman history or Islamic Golden Age philosophy, you could focus in on one of these to see how it was understood in that period and at that time. I've chosen Al-Karifi, who uh, is in and around Cairo in the 1220s, um, just because it sums up a point I really wanted to make. He does it very clearly. This is how he describes the shape of the rainbow. As to the circular shape of the rainbow... It is caused by the fact that the disk of the sun is round. It is as if we placed one leg of the compasses in the disk of the sun and as if we drew a circle in the damp vapour with the other leg. Then we would obtain an arc which would be a half circle if the sun were on the horizon. But if the sun were above the horizon, then the bow would seem smaller than a semicircle because the rest of the semicircle would be under the earth on account of the height of the sun above the horizon. James, did you follow that? I did, yes. <laughs> He lied helpfully. <laughs> I, I've read it many, many times. and I'm pretty sure I still don't understand it. He also writes about the colour of rainbows as well. I'll just read you a bit of this. It's brilliant. In vapours, the colour of the sun is always red, as the colour of the sunset sky and the colour seen after the morning twilight show us, because this red colour is composed of the colour of the light of the sun and that of the vapour. It is not a body, therefore, that causes the red colour in the rainbow. The damp vapours are partly dense, namely the ones far from the earth which are stiffened into stones because of the cold existing in these high regions. I love that. It's really, really good. My point about this is that you, you've actually got here, um, as much as anything, they're philosophers writing about the natural world. And it fundamentally changes with Newton and his book on optics in 1704. So there are a lot of people struggling with the concepts 
of what's going on. And I'm now just going to deliberately read you a little bit from Newton's optics because I love it. And it, I, I think it does make, make the point quite clearly. Here we are. The proof by experiments. Unfortunately, I haven't got the entire time to actually read this entire experiment out, but it's great. It gives me a, a sense of Newton being a bit like an eight-year-old in primary school messing around with paints and colours, um, but actually working out how rainbows work. Here we go. I took a black oblong stiff paper terminated by parallel sides and with a perpendicular right line drawn cross from one side to the other, distinguished it into two equal parts. One of these parts I painted with a red colour and the other with a blue. The paper was very black and the colours intense and thickly laid on, that the phenomenon might be more conspicuous. This paper I viewed through a prism of solid glass, whose two sides through which the light passed to the eye were plain and well polished, and contained an angle of about 60 degrees, which angle I call the refracting angle of the prism. And whilst I viewed it, I held it and the prism before a window in such manner that the sides of the paper were parallel to the prism, and both those sides and the prism were parallel to the horizon, and the cross line was also parallel to it, and that the light which fell from the window upon the paper made an angle with the paper, equal to that angle which was made with the same paper by the light reflected from it to the eye. It goes on and on. It's rather poetic and it's very beautiful. But there's a really important point here. First is, it's not in Latin. And that is one of the key things you need to understand about why Newton's optics is so important. He hasn't just worked out a rainbow. He's written it in vernacular English and he's also written it in a way that makes sense. And I think that experiment still makes sense to me. It makes much more sense than Al-Kharifi's attempt to explain it. And that's not a problem of translation. Our translation of the of Al-Kharifi's is, is we're very confident in it. But it's the, the, the actual words in which he's saying. Newton has an ability to explain simple scientific facts and knowledge and understanding in a way that masses and masses of people can understand it. And of course, it's in English. So he hasn't just explained it. He's done it in a way which, which makes huge amounts of people can understand it. And that made me think about people translating the Bible very briefly, James, as well. It's um, a similar sort of thing. You're making something which was previously only understood by a few into something which had a kind of a mass market. I was thinking you know, about the Reformation, about Tyndale, about the James's Bible. Yeah, yeah. Where you have the Bible, which is normally in Latin, it's translated into English, and then thousands of people can get at it. Um, I, I did actually do a bit of research into that and discovered that Alfred the Great had actually had the Ten Commandments translated into English. So it wasn't just the Reformation when it started to be in English. Anyway, the point is that Newton and his work on rainbows actually occupies this really important moment in the history of the public and understanding of science. And I'm going to come back to it later because I'm sure you've got an example, but you have to hold that in your mind and, um, and we'll come back and find out a little bit more about Newton in a while. That's fascinating. I, I, love, I love Newton. Brilliant, brilliant. But where I'm going to take us is slightly different. I'm going to take us to the rainbow portrait of Queen Elizabeth I. Now, we've spoken about this in the past. Um, we actually talk about it in our live show on the Tudors. And we've written about it in our little book, our Histories of the Unexpected, the Tudors, in our chapter on eyes. Because if you have a look 
at the sleeves of Queen Elizabeth's dress. There are eyes and ears drawn there in this painting that's supposed to be by Marcus Geertz the Younger um, and dated from around 1600 to 1602. It's held at Hatfield House, which was the home of the Cecils uh, and the Earl of Salisbury, Robert Cecil. Um, so the eyes are supposed to represent uh, intelligence and intelligencing and Elizabeth basically being this all-powerful being that is looking out for uh, the people of her nation, looking for spies everywhere. But what's interesting is she's also holding a rainbow and on the other side of the painting is a serpent and it's this that I want to talk about in a little more detail. And it does connect to the Bible and it connects to that, that very famous passage in Genesis. But this painting has the motto, non sine sole iris, which means no rainbow without the sun. And what we have here is a symbol with a motto. The symbol is of the rainbow here. And this rainbow is representative of her meaning peace, that she brings in, almost like a sort of portent in the sky, a new golden age of peace. And this is very similar to the symbol of the rainbow, which was used when Catherine de' Medici made it her impressor. In other words, a symbol with a motto, which was, it brings light and serenity. And if you look at the piece as a whole, so if you look at the portrait as a whole, there's a degree of symmetry here. So the rainbow is on the right hand and the serpent is on the left sleeve. And so there's some kind of clash here. But what it's showing is that the rainbow displays peace. And it relates to the verses in Genesis 9, 13 to 16. And I'll read this out here. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant. In other words, an agreement between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow, in other words, the rainbow, shall be in the cloud. And I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. The important point here is that this covenant applies to all living creatures and not just to a particular people. And this is very important during this period of the Reformation, because the Rainbow Covenant was particularly open to Protestants and Catholics alike. And we can see the rainbow as a symbol used elsewhere in the 16th century in a very similar manner, which is with the reformer Thomas Munzer, who headed up the Peasants' Rebellion. And the image of the rainbow on a white background was part of their banner with the watchword, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And 
basically, this was when the leader of this group told people that they could rely on the sign of the rainbow to show them that God was on their side. And he gave this sort of passioned plea, promising miraculous victory to what was basically a fairly ill put together, ill armed body of companions. And listen to this. For all be it, we are not well furnished with weapons and other things necessary for our own defence. Yet shall this engine of heaven and earth be changed rather than God shall forsake us. So was the water of the Red Sea changed in times past. Therefore fear you nothing but fight manfully against your wicked enemies and be not afraid of their guns. For all the pellets that shall they shout I will receive them with my coat. Behold, see you not how merciful a God we have. Behold a sign and token of his everlasting goodwill towards us. Lift up your eyes and see the rainbow in the sky. For seeing we have the same painted on our ensign, God declareth plainly by the similitude that he showeth us on high that he will abide us in battle and destroy the tyrants. But what actually happened was nothing like that. In practice, the, these people were massacred. The enemy attacked them with cavalry, with artillery, and the peasants, and I quote, poor wretches standing all amazed, and as men ravished of their wits, neither defended themselves nor sought their safety by flight, but song in Dutch mitre, requiring the aid of the Holy Ghost, in other words, 5,000 of them were slaughtered, were killed when they finally broke. And it, it ends, pitiful and lamentable was their unpitied and well-performed slaughter. No, not so much as one to tell the tale of the rainbow. So in other words, then, this image of the rainbow as this, this image or symbol of peace uh, is one that we see not just now with the LGBT, not just with South Africa, post-apartheid, but one that actually has a long and interesting history back into the 16th century and beyond. I love that. The, um, you know, the idea as well with this, the biblical references in the 16th century and how significant that was, um, is a really important part to understanding the changes in the Bible. And you talked about it there in relation to the covenant. So that's the covenant between the God and Jews. It's the basis for the idea that the Jews are the chosen people. Essentially, God asks Abraham to do certain things in return for which he'll take, um, take special care of them. And I was reading a really interesting article which explained how the, uh, the symbolism of the rainbow well, our understanding of it changed. Um, it's like a historiographical point. So in the early 90s, an article was written um, suggesting that actually the rainbow itself, for years and years, it was argued that it was a visual representation of a, it was a concrete symbol. It was a war bow. It was an actual weapon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Um, which I think is uh, extraordinary. Here you've got the Hebrew word keset, which actually means both a war bow and a rainbow. And because of that, it was thought to, to represent um, peace. And essentially, you've got you've got God setting aside his bow. Recently, there's been some argument against that. And there's there's a, an, another explanation suggesting that the rainbow is actually a, a visual representation of the firmament, uh, like a barrier between what was the waters above, uh, the waters above in heaven and the waters down below. And so it's a way of protecting, of protecting the earth from the floods. Um, so. Uh, Yes, again, it's a it's a it's a concrete symbol of God's covenant, the relationship, but it's it's more to do with um, this representation of of the firmament rather than being his bow. And I love the way that had changed. And then I've got some stuff from the 16th century, um, which also focuses on on this. Um, Gascoigne's Good Morrow. It's a lovely poem. Um, here, you've got the, the rainbow itself symbolising God and also uh, forecasting salvation. The rainbow bending in the sky, bedecked with sundry hues, is like the seat of God on high, and seems to tell these news, that as thereby he promised to drown the world no more, so by the blood which Christ hath shed, he will our health restore. And another from Henry Vaughan in 1650. 1650. When I behold thee, though my light be dim, distant and low, I can in thine see him who looks upon thee from his glorious throne and minds the covenant twixt all and one. Absolutely fantastic. I had to read that several times. But now I want you to take you back to what was going on with Newton. So remember, you've got Newton who's explained in layman's terms how the rainbow works. And that means that poets start dealing with rainbows differently. So there's a fundamental change in the way that artists interact with rainbows, they, the way they use them. And part of that is all to do with Newton's explanation of what the rainbow is and how it works. So the key passage in uh, Newton's book, Optics, is this. This bow never appears but where it rains in the sunshine and may be made artificially by spouting up water which may break aloft and scatter into drops and fall down like rain. For the sun shining upon these drops certainly causes the bow to appear to a spectator standing in a due position to the sun and rain. And hence it is now agreed upon that this bow is made by refraction of the sun's light in drops of falling rain. Key bit here is that the, Newton is making it clear that there is a role of the viewer in achieving the rainbow, so that the same rainbow doesn't appear to the same person if they move. Another person is seeing a different rainbow if they're standing somewhere else. So what he's suggesting is actually that the viewer has a certain degree of power in understanding the natural phenomenon. And that is exactly what artists and poets are thinking about at exactly the same time. They're appreciating the role of the viewer in understanding um, the aesthetics of art. So if you're looking at a painting, then I would see, it's a really modern concept of understanding modern art, actually. If I look at art, my, the way I see it and my experience, my eyes as I look at that painting, fundamentally changes what that painting actually means. So all of this me means that 
artists are kind of getting on board with Newton's, his scientific idea. And they sort of channel that and explain and they write about it also in their own terms, but they also celebrate what Newton has done. And so there are these absolutely wonderful poets, poems written about Newton saying cool stuff about rainbows. This is James Thompson, the most important 18th century poet to write about Newton and rainbows. Nature herself stood all subdued by him and open laid her every latent glory to his view. Even light itself, which everything displays, shone undiscovered till his brighter mind untwisted all the shining robe of day. And from the whitening undistinguished blaze, collecting every ray into his kind, to the charmed eye educed the gorgeous train of parent colours. And later John Keats, this is the early 1800s, do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy. There was an awful rainbow once in heaven. We know her woof, her texture. She is given in the dull catalogue of common things. Philosophy will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air and gnomed mine, unweave a rainbow. Wow! <laughs> wow! John Keats, what a legend. So there you go. So um, it, it, Newton's discovery of the rainbow actually leads to all sorts of complicated things in, um, in poetry uh, and also in the, the artistic world generally in the, um, in the 18th century. Fascinating. Excellent. I'm going to take us in a different direction. I'm going to take us backwards and then forwards. So I'm going to take us back to our discussions of the flag and the rainbow flag. And then I'm going to take us on to look at the history of LGBTQ and how that manifests itself throughout historical projects and ways of looking at and interpreting the past and a very important uh, perspective of opening up the past that is inclusive and therefore everyone. So to start with, the idea of the adoption of the rainbow as a symbol in the flag of gay pride. And this goes back to 1978, when the artist Gilbert Baker, who was a, a drag queen, an openly gay man, designed the first rainbow flag. And apparently he was encouraged to do so by Harvey Milk, who was one of the first openly gay elected officials in the United States and was later famously assassinated. There's a brilliant film biopic of him which stars Sean Penn that you should all go out and look at. But basically this was the turning point. This was when the flag was first designed and Baker, when interviewed later, uh, said this of it. Our job as gay people was to come out, to be visible, to live in the truth. As I say, to get out of the lie. A flag really fit that mission because that's a way of proclaiming your visibility or saying this is who I am. And Baker saw the flag, the rainbow flag, as symbolising something that was natural, a natural flag in the sky. And he adopted eight colours for the different stripes, each which he saw having different meaning. So you had hot pink for sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green for nature, turquoise for art, indigo for harmony and violet for spirit. And these flags 
were homemade and were first used on the 25th of June 1978 for the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Parade. They're made by hand and he wanted everyone to be able to, to carry them. And then in 1994, the rainbow flag was officially adopted as the symbol for LGBTQ pride. Um, so that's the history of the flag. But from there, I want to go on and talk about the importance of LGBT interpretation in heritage sites and in history. And in particular, for where in museums and castles and various other heritage sites do people who identify as LGBTQ, where do they find their particular history? And I've been involved in several projects that have that have attempted this kind of thing. Uh, the first is at Powderham Castle. And there we've worked with Plymouth Pride. And what we've done is we've uncovered the story of William Courtney, the third Viscount, uh, who was uh, gay. He was homosexual at the time. We're talking um, 18th century here um, and was spurned by his family. So he was he was sent away to go and live in exile in New York because he had a very high profile affair. It was it was public scandal at the time and he basically had to flee. Uh, what's interesting is that lots of his papers from that period were destroyed by later generations of the family who were embarrassed with it, about it. Um, however, what we've done, uh, working with the castle, with the Earl and Countess of Devon, is we have recreated this story and built it into the narrative of the house, and it's part of an interpretive trail that people can have, so that, you know, if you are an LGBTQ individual, you can go to Powderham and have that interpretive tour and find part of your identity and your past and your history in a, a home, in, a, in an English castle like that. I've done similar things with the Victorian Albert Museum in a, in a big project called Interpreting the Gendered Interpretations of the Victorian Albert and Vassar Museums, the Vassar Museum being that wonderful ship museum in Stockholm in Sweden. And again there, what we are trying to do is through a very detailed analysis of particular objects, what we want to do is to encourage people to tell and uncover stories of all genders and sexuality and then find them throughout the museum. And I've been working with a very talented team there, including the wonderful Kit Hyam, uh, who is an utter genius uh, in this area and, and from whom I've learned an enormous amount. The final thing that I want to tell you about is a project that uh, comes out of the University of Plymouth. Uh, and it's run by a friend and colleague uh, called Alan Butler. And Alan is an extraordinary individual and he did his PhD on oral history. And what he did was to uncover the queer past of Plymouth. So, and he did this through oral history, through interviewing individuals and recapturing, recovering their testimony and their stories about their time as gay people in the past in Plymouth. And this has formed a queer oral history archive that is deposited 
in the local record office. And one of the fascinating things that Alan has done with this is he sees the oral history archive not as something that is static, but something that it has a, an agency, a dynamism, a history that actually is able to go out there and work. And, and it has an effect. And he's put together this project called the Rainbow Connection. And it's a really exciting project funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. It's with working with Plymouth Praxis at the University of Plymouth, with Pride in Plymouth, with Bernardo's, with the new fantastic box that's opening up in Plymouth, with Devon Police, with Babcock, to in Babcock International, with a range of schools within the city. And at the root of it is this idea about transgenerational education. So it's it's basically exploring the heritage of lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender communities in the city of Plymouth. And at the root of it is this idea that if you are a young gay teen nowadays, you're born into a heterosexual family, um, you know, they whether they are understanding of you or not and supportive, they do not have the same experience themselves of growing up with a particular sexual orientation that you that you have. They do not share that with you. And so there's a certain sort of schooling and education that you can't get from them as, as parents. And so what he's arguing is that the oral history archive allows you to do that. And what this does is it links together different generations. So it links together the young teenagers with more elderly uh, gay individuals um, who haven't necessarily had the same experience of their young teen people. And what they do is they share stories. So the young teens are learning about the history of sexuality from an older generation. And the older generation, this is where the intergenerational education comes in, the older generation who are much more used to having to keep things hidden away and closed and not talk about this and not being open, are learning from a younger generation who are out and proud that they have something to learn from them. So it's a wonderful example of how an oral history archive lives and has a real importance in transgenerational education. Love it. That's great. Isn't it cool? I want to go. It's really cool. Isn't really, it cool? absolutely fantastic. Because I think one of the challenges we have is when we talk about the, our, our unexpected subjects, some of them can get quite abstract at times. And I think one of the key things we really want to do is to make people realise how they can actually carry on and do a bit of work or a bit of research into it. And obviously, um, you know, this archive is a great way of getting involved. Um, and just to finish off, I just want to talk about Constable, the artist. Oh, um, because um, he... Also, there's a wonderful little thing here and explains how, how you might look at um, the rainbows he was interested in. Constable's very well known for his cloud studies primarily, which he made between 1819 and 22, and that helps him as a young man become the amazing artist he is of the English landscape. But his rainbow work has actually been rather overlooked, but people have recently discovered um, some... Um, notes and some sketches that he, he made... 
and they're absolutely wonderful. They're on little fragments of paper. They've been kind of torn with pits missing and, and with um, shapes cut out of them. And they've also got tiny little pinholes in them um, where they think he, he basically had a kind of a mood board in his study somewhere and he was pinning up his studies of rainbows. Uh, and it's just it's a, it's a brilliant way of thinking about how an artist was actually responding to the challenge of rainbows at any one time. And you can look at his very early sketches. And if you want to look at how he'd actually finished it, go and have a look at his painting of Salisbury Cathedral from the Meadows in 1831, which is when he when he reached his just the final level of amazing ability at painting rainbows. But it all came from a great deal of hard work and taking notes. So, um, yeah, you can look at his notes. You can look at the final the final thing as well. But uh, Cuntspool and Cuntspool's rainbows are truly worth looking at. Um, thank before, you all for listening, guys. Before, oh, hello. We, before we go, I came across something very similar, but in medieval manuscripts, which mm. was medieval scribes drawing rainbows and using not just the dark ink, but also using all sorts of coloured inks to represent the rainbows. And there are loads of these. And this leads us to think about how, it comes back to ink, you guessed it. It, it, it leads us to think about how medieval scribes made their own ink colours using different ingredients to represent all the colours of the rainbow, which we don't have time to go into, but it's absolutely fascinating. I'd like to. We can do that next time, can we? Yes. <laughs> Let's yes. do that. We'll do one on ink. Uh, James, that's brilliant as always. Guys, I hope you enjoyed listening to that. I thought that was fascinating myself. Um, do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. Please tell teachers and kids and anyone with parents about our homeschooling series. We're very proud of it and we're going to carry on doing it. Uh, it's super good fun. Otherwise, uh, get us in touch with us on um, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We want to hear from every single one of you. And um, that's it for now. And oh, oh, do please leave a review on iTunes if you're enjoying it. That would really help us as well. But that's it for now, guys. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.